When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to the new Mutual Audio Network. Welcome home. The following audio drama is rated PG for parental guidance recommended. Hello, I'm Jack Ward, and this is the Sonic Society, episode 725, aptly titled Audio Dramas. And I'm here with Audio Theatre's David Alt, the world's best co-host. Oh, thank you, Jack. Good morning, one and all. This week, the audio drama show provides us with some very interesting adaptations of classic tales. And in this case, from England's own, and often called the second most important writer of English tales, the uh, utterly ridiculous Charles Dickens. Uh, <laughs> I, I I have issues with Dickens, and if you if you want, to I know do too what... personally. But that's but I'm I'm just going by what people say. My grandmother loved Dickens. I have so much trouble reading Dickens myself. I I and I it's hard for me to say that as an English teacher. I remember just going, I'm going to read the Pickwick Papers, and I my girlfriend at the time I like. How am I, How does anybody read this? This goes on forever and ever. And she looked at me and she said, "Paid by the word, Jack." paid yes, by the word exactly, and i went oh exactly. that's why he put five <laughs> words in when he could have used one there you go and, and of course every chapter has a cliffhanger ending of course as well so that people will buy the next issue of the magazine so exactly uh, there yes. you go so many issues with Dickens. But anyway, in <laughs> for this, Mr. James Newbury creates audio scripts of the story of Tom Smart and the Strange Client, and our double feature begins right here. On the Sonic Society. And maybe it'll be easier for listening. <laughs> Tales from the Pickwick Papers by Charles Dickens. The story of Tom Smart... The Widow and the Wooden Chair. One stormy winter's evening just before dusk, a man in a small carriage was urging his tired horse along the road. He was travelling across the Marlborough Downs in the direction of Bristol. The wind blew across the road and the carriage jogged along in the middle of it, lonesome and dreary. Its driver was Tom Smart, a salesman working for the great firm of Bilson and Slum. For a moment, the gale would die away and Tom would delude himself that it had quietly laid itself down to rest. Then on it would come again, rushing over the hilltops, gathering sound and strength, until it dashed with a heavy gust against horse and man, 
driving the sharp rain into their ears and its cold, damp breath into their bones. The bay mare splashed away through the mud and water with drooping ears, now and then tossing her head in disgust at the elements, but keeping a good pace. Well damn my straps and whiskers! If this ain't pleasant, blow me! Cheer up, old girl! It won't do pushing on such a night as this! The first house we come to, we'll pull up at, so the faster you go, the sooner it's over! Whoa! The mare had pricked up her ears and started off at speed. This made the clay-coloured carriage rattle until you'd think that every one of its red spokes was going to fly off onto the turf. Fit as he was, even Tom couldn't stop or check her pace. Finally... She drew up of her own accord before a roadside inn, about a quarter of a mile from the end of the downs. Tom cast a hasty glance at the upper part of the house as he threw the reins to the ostler. It was a comfortable-looking place. There was a strong, cheerful light in the bar window which shed a bright ray across the road. A red flickering light in the opposite window indicated that a rousing fire blazed within. He entered, and in less than five minutes he was ensconced in the room opposite the bar, where the fire roared and crackled with a heartwarming sound. A smartly dressed girl was laying a very clean white cloth on the table. As Tom sat with his slippered feet on the fender, he saw a charming prospect. It was the bar reflected in the glass over the chimney piece. Delightful rows of green bottles and gold labels, together with jars of pickles, preserves, cheeses, boiled hams and rounds of beef, all arranged on the shelves in a most attractive array. Well, this was tempting, but it was not all. Taking tea at the nicest possible table was a buxom widow of eight and forty or thereabouts. Evidently, the landlady of the house. There was only one drawback to the beauty of the whole picture. This was in the shape of a very tall man in a brown coat, bright basket buttons, black whiskers and wavy black hair. He was sat at tea with the widow. It required no great penetration to discover he was in a fair way of persuading her to be a widow no longer. Tom Smart was by no means of an irritable or envious disposition. But this tall man with the brown coat made him feel extremely indignant, particularly as he could now observe certain little confidences passing between the tall man and the widow, clearly indicating that the man was as high in favour as he was in size. Now Tom was very fond of hot punch. Having seen the mare well fed and bedded down, he ate the nice little dinner which the widow prepared for him with her own hands. Then he ordered a tumbler of punch. This first punch was so deliciously adapted to his taste that he immediately ordered a second and another, and another. The more he drank of the hot punch, the more he thought of the tall man. Confound his impudence. What business is he in that snug bar? Such an ugly villain too. If the widow had any taste, she might surely pick some better fellow than that. It had long been Tom's ambition to stand in a bar of his own. 
He had often thought how well he could preside in his own room, in the talking way, and the capital example he could set to his customers in the drinking department. As he sat, downing two more tumblers of punch by the roaring fire, he began to feel very justly and properly indignant, irritated that the tall man should be well on his way to keeping such an excellent house while he was as far off as ever from it. Soon he was deliberating whether he hadn't the perfect right to pick a quarrel with the tall man. But in the end, he arrived at the satisfactory conclusion that he was... A very ill-used and persecuted individual. And had better go to bed. Tom was conducted through a maze of rooms and labyrinth of passages by the smart girl. She preceded him to the apartment that had been prepared for him, where she bade him good night. It was a good, large room with big closets, and a bed which might have served for a whole boarding school, to say nothing of a couple of oak presses that would have held the baggage of a small army. But what struck Tom's fancy most was a strange, grim-looking, high-backed chair. This chair was carved in the most fantastic manner, with a flowered silk cushion. The round knobs at the bottom of its legs were carefully tied up in red cloth, as if it had gout in its toes. There was something very peculiar about this particular chair, yet he couldn't tell what it was. He sat down before the fire and stared at the chair for a full half an hour before getting undressed. He couldn't take his eyes off it. Well... I never saw such a rum concern as that in all my days. Very odd. He got into bed, covered up warm and fell asleep. But in about half an hour, Tom woke up with a start from a confused dream of tall men and tumblers of punch. The first object that presented itself to his waking imagination was the strange chair. He squeezed his eyelids together and tried to persuade himself to go to sleep. I won't look at it anymore. It was no use. Nothing but odd chairs danced before his eyes, kicking up their legs, jumping over each other's backs and playing all kinds of antics. (sighs) I may as well see one real chair as two or three complete sets of imaginary ones. All at once... Tom opened his eyes and gazed at the chair. Suddenly, the most extraordinary change seemed to come over it. (gasps) The carving on the back gradually assumed the expression of an old, shriveled human face. The silk cushion became an antique flapped waistcoat. The round knobs grew into a couple of feet encased in red cloth slippers. And the whole chair looked like a very ugly old man of a previous century with his arms spread wide. Tom sat up in bed and rubbed his eyes in disbelief. The chair remained an ugly old gentleman. And what was more, he was winking at him. Although he was startled at first, he began to grow rather indignant when he saw the old man continue to wink and leer at him with such an impudent air. What the devil are you winking at me for? The chair stopped winking and began grinning and chuckling. (laughs) 
Because I likes it, Tom Smart. <laughs> Who do you know my name, old nutcracker face? Oh, come, come, Tom. That's not the way to address solid Spanish mahogany. Damn me. You couldn't treat me with less respect if I was veneered. I didn't mean to treat you with any disrespect, sir. Well, well, perhaps not. Perhaps not. Sir, how did you get... I know everything about you, Tom. Everything. You are very poor, aren't you? I certainly am. How came you to know about that? Never mind. You are also much too fond of punch, Tom. I, I haven't touched a drop since my last birthday, six months or more. The Woodhams, I... a fine and remarkable woman, eh? <laughs> Here, the old fellow screwed up his eyes, cocked up one of his wasted little legs, and looked altogether so unpleasantly amorous that Tom was quite disgusted. <laughs> yeah! <laughs> <laughs> I am her guardian, Tom. Are you? I knew her mother and her grandmother. She was very fond of me and made me this waistcoat and these shoes. Did she? Oh, but don't mention it. I shouldn't like to have it known that she was so much attached to me. It might occasion some unpleasantness in the family. I have been a great favourite among the women in my time, Tom. Hundreds of fine women have sat in my lap for hours on end. <laughs> what do you think of that, eh? <laughs> Just serves you right, old boy. I am a good deal troubled now. I am getting old, Tom. I've lost nearly all my rails. I have had an operation performed too. A small piece of wood let into my back. Oh, I found that a severe trial. I dare say you did, sir. However, that is not the point, Tom. I want you to marry the widow. Me, sir? You. Bless your reverend lark, she wouldn't have me. Wouldn't she? No, no, that there's somebody else in the wind. A tall man. A confoundedly tall man with black whiskers. Tom, she will never have him. Won't she? <laughs> if you stood in the bar, old gentleman, you'd tell another story. Poo-poo. I know all about that. About what? The kissing behind the door and all that sort of thing. <laughs> I know all about that, Tom. In my time, I have seen it done often between more people than I'd like to mention. But it never comes to anything. You must have seen some strange things. You may say that, Tom. I am the last of my family. Was it a large one? Well, there were twelve of us. Fine, straight-back, handsome fellows as you'd wish to see. None of your modern rubbish. And what became of the others? Gone, Tom. All gone. We had hard service and they didn't all have my constitution. They got rheumatic about the legs and arms, went into kitchens and hospitals. One of them, with long service and hard usage, lost his mind. He got so crazy that I had to burn him. Shocking thing, that. Dreadful. However, I'm wandering from the point. 
This tall man is a rascally adventurer. The moment he married the widow, he would sell off the furniture and run away. What would be the consequence? She would be deserted and reduced to ruin, and I should catch my death of cold in some pawnbroker's shop. Yes, but... Don't interrupt me. Of you, Tom, I entertain a different opinion. For I know that if you once settled yourself in a public house, you would never leave it as long as there was something to drink. I'm very much obliged to you for your good opinion, sir. Therefore, you shall have her, and he shall not. What is to prevent that? This disclosure. He is already married. How can I prove it? He little thinks. That in the right-hand pocket of a pair of trousers in that press, he has left a letter. A letter begging him to return to his heartbroken wife. And he has six, mark me, six babes, all of them small ones. As the old gentleman solemnly uttered these words, his features grew less and less distinct, and his figure more shadowy. A film came over Tom Smart's eyes. The old man seemed to be blending into the old chair, the damask waistcoat resolving into a cushion, and the red slippers shrinking into little red cloth bags. The light faded gently away and Tom Smart fell back into his pillow and dropped asleep. Morning aroused Tom. He sat up in bed and for some minutes vainly tried to recall the events of the previous night. Suddenly they rushed upon him. He looked at the chair. It was a fantastic and grim-looking piece of furniture, certainly, but it must have been a remarkably ingenious and lively imagination that could have discovered any resemblance between it and an old man. How are you, old boy? Miserable morning. The chair would not be drawn into conversation. Remind me, if you would, which press did you point to for that letter? You can tell me that. Well, that's not much trouble, anyhow. He walked up to one of the presses. The key was in the lock. He turned it and opened the door. There was a pair of trousers there. He put his hand into the pocket and drew forth the identical letter the old gentleman had described. <sighs> queer sort of thing, this. Very queer. Tom surveyed the room he passed through on his way downstairs with a scrutinising eye of a landlord. The tall man was standing in the snug little bar with his hands behind him quite at home. He grinned vacantly at Tom. A casual observer might have supposed that he did it only to show off his white teeth. But Tom Smart thought that a consciousness of triumph was passing through the place where the man's mind would have been, if he had any. The widow entered. Good morning, ma'am. Good morning, sir. What will you take for breakfast, sir? Tom was thinking desperately how he should open proceedings, so he made no answer. There's a very nice ham and a beautiful cold larded fowl. 
Shall I send him in, sir? These words roused Tom from his reflections. His admiration for the widow had increased as she spoke. Who is that gentleman in the bar, ma'am? His name is Jenkins, sir. He's a tall man. He's a very fine man, sir. And a very nice gentleman. Ah. Is there anything more you want, sir? Well, yes, my dear ma'am. Will you have the kindness to sit down with me for one moment? The widow looked much amazed. But she sat down, and Tom sat down too, close beside her. Somehow or other, the palm of Tom's hand fell upon the back of the widow's and remained there while he spoke. My dear ma'am, you deserve a very excellent husband. You do indeed. Nor, sir. I scorn to flatter, my dear ma'am. You deserve a very admirable man. And whoever he is, he'll be a very lucky man. The widow looked puzzled and made an effort to rise. Stay. Tom gently pressed her hand as if to detain her and she kept her seat. I'm sure I'm very much obliged to you, sir, for your good opinion. If I ever marry again... If? <laughs> if? Well, when I do, I hope I shall have as good a husband as you describe. You mean Jenkins? Lor, sir. Oh, don't tell me. I know him. I'm sure nobody who knows him has anything bad to say about him. <laughs> Do you wish to insult me, sir? Do you think it gentlemanly to take away the character of another gentleman behind his back? If you have anything to say, why do you not say it to him, like a man, instead of terrifying me? I'll say it to him fast enough, only I want you to hear it first. What is it? It'll astonish you. If it's that he needs money, I know that already. And you needn't trouble yourself. Pooh nonsense, that's nothing. I need money, taint that. Oh dear, what can it be? Don't be frightened. You, you won't scream. No, no, tell me. You won't go fainting away or any of that nonsense. No, no. And don't run and blow him out, because I'll do that for you. Yes, yes, tell me. <sighs> I will. With these words, Tom Smart drew forth the letter, unfolded it, and placed it in the widow's hand. Oh, 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 the deception and filly of the man. Frightful, my dear Mamba, compose yourself. Oh, I can't compose myself. I shall never find anyone else I can love so much. Yes, you will, my dear soul, you will. In the energy of his compassion, Tom Smart put his arm around the widow. She, in the passion of grief, clasped Tom's hand. She looked up into Tom's face and smiled through her tears. Tom looked down in hers and smiled through his. They kissed. Half an hour later, Tom kicked the very tall man out at the front door. And don't come back! Within a month, Tom had married the widow. His greatest pleasure was to drive about the country in the clay-coloured carriage, with its red wheels and the lively, fast-paced mare. Many years after, he gave up the landlording business 
and went to France with his wife. Eventually, the old house on the edge of the Marlborough Downs was pulled down. But what of the chair that became an old man? Well, according to Tom Smart, on the day of the wedding, the chair was observed to creak very much. He could not say for certain whether it was with pleasure or bodily infirmity. He rather thought it was the latter, though, for the old chair never spoke again. The story of Tom Smart, the widow and the wooden chair featured the voices of Lisa Nightingale, Jim Newberry and Mike Ayres. It was adapted and directed by Jim Newberry with a soundscape realised by Robbie Burgess. Tales from the Pickwick Papers by Charles Dickens. The Story of the Strange Client In the Borough High Street near St George's Church used to stand the smallest of our debtors' prisons, the Marshalsea. In later times, it became a very different place to the sink of filth and dirt that it once was. However, even in its improved condition, it held out little temptation to the extravagant or consolation to the improvident. In this part of London, the street was broad and the shops spacious. All the busy sounds of traffic resounded in it from morn to midnight, the noise of passing vehicles and the footsteps of a perpetual stream of people. But the surrounding streets were mean and close. Poverty and debauchery lay festering in the crowded alleys. Neglect and misfortune were pent up in the narrow prison. An air of gloominess seemed to hang about the scene. Many years ago, these pavements were worn with the footsteps of a mother and child. Day by day, as surely as the morning came, they presented themselves at the prison gate, a whole hour too early. This was often after a night of restless misery and anxious thoughts. Turning meekly away from the prison, the young mother would lead the child to the old bridge, raising him up in her arms to show him the glistening water that was tinted with the light of the morning sun, attempting to interest his thoughts in the objects before him. But she would quickly set him down, and hiding her face in the shawl, gave vent to the tears that blinded her. For no expression of interest or amusement lit up his thin and sickly face. His recollections were few enough, but they were all of one kind, all connected with the poverty and misery of his parents. The father and mother looked on this, and upon each other with thoughts of agony that they dared not breathe in words. The healthy, strong-made man, who could have borne almost any physical exertion, was wasting beneath the close confinement and unhealthy atmosphere of a crowded prison. Winter came, and with it weeks of cold and heavy rain. The poor girl had moved to a wretched apartment close to the spot of her husband's imprisonment. 
And though the change had been necessary by their increasing poverty, she was happier now for being nearer him. For two months, she and her little companion watched the opening of the gate as usual. But one day, for the first time, she failed to come. Another morning arrived, and she came, alone. The child was dead. It was plain to those who looked upon the mother's altered face that death must soon close the scene of her adversity and trial. Her husband's fellow prisoners shrank from intruding on his grief and misery, leaving him alone in the small room he had previously shared. She now shared it with him, lingering on, without pain, but without hope. Her life ebbed slowly away. <sighs> she had fainted one evening in her husband's arms, and he bore her to an open window to revive her with the air. Sit me down, George. Oh, it's very hard to leave you. But it's God's will, and you must bear it for my sake. <coughs> oh, how I thank him for having taken our boy. He is happy and in heaven now. What would he have done here without his mother? You shall not die, Mary. You shall not die. Rouse yourself, my dear. Pray, pray do. You will revive yet. Never again, George. Let them lay me by my poor boy now. <laughs> oh, you must promise me. Promise that if you ever leave this dreadful place and should grow rich, you will have us removed. Take us to some quiet churchyard a long way off, where we can rest in peace. <laughs> oh, George, promise me you will. I do, I do. Speak to me, Mary. Another word. One look! He ceased to speak, for the arm that clasped his neck grew stiff and heavy. Her lips moved and a smile played upon her face. But the lips were pale, and the smile faded into a rigid and ghastly stare. He was alone in the world. That night... In the silence and desolation of his miserable room, the wretched man knelt down by the dead body of his wife. He called on God to witness a terrible oath. From this hour, I devote myself to the revenge of your and my child's death. To the last moment of my life, my energies will be directed to this one cause. My revenge will be protracted and terrible. My hatred will be undying as I hunt through the world for those who caused it. In that one night, the deepest despair and scarcely human passion made fierce ravages on his face and form. His companions in misfortune shrank from him, afraid as he passed by. His eyes were bloodshot and heavy, his face a deadly white, and his body was bent as if with age. He had nearly bitten through his underlip in the violence of mental suffering. The blood which flowed from the wound trickled down his chin, staining his shirt and neckerchief. No tear or sound of complaint escaped him. 
but the unsettled look and disordered haste with which he paced up and down the yard told of the fever which was burning within him. His wife's body had to be removed from the prison without delay. He received the communication with perfect calmness. Nearly all the inmates had assembled to witness its removal. The rude coffin was borne slowly forward on men's shoulders. They reached the spot where the bereaved husband stood and stopped. He laid his hand upon the coffin, mechanically adjusted the pall which covered it, and motioned them onwards. The turnkeys in the prison lobby took off their hats as it passed through, and in another moment the heavy gate closed behind him. George Haling looked vacantly at the crowd and fell heavily to the ground. For many weeks after, in the wildest ravings of fever, neither the consciousness of his loss nor the terrible vow he had made ever left him for a moment. When the fever eventually subsided, he awoke to find himself rich and free and to hear the tale of two fathers. First, his own father had been found dead in his feather bed of down. This was the man who would have let him die in jail, who had let his wife and child die of want. Those who were far dearer to him than his own existence. This father had decided to disinherit him and leave him a beggar. But proud of his own health and strength, he had put off the act of disinheritance until it was too late and now might be gnashing his teeth in the other world at the thought of the wealth his remissness had left him. George Haling awoke to this and to recollect the new purpose for which he lived, remembering that his main enemy now was a second father, his wife's. He was the man who had first cast him in prison, who had spurned his own daughter and her child from the door when they sued at his feet for mercy. Haling caused himself to be carried from the scene of his loss and misery to a quiet residence on the sea coast to restore his energies and meditate on his task. And here was cast in his way the opportunity for his first and most horrible revenge. It was summertime and wrapped in his gloomy thoughts he was seated one calm evening at a wild and lonely spot that had struck his fancy during his daily ramblings. Now and then, he raised his head to watch the flight of a seagull or gazed along the glorious crimson path that began in the middle of the ocean. 
This path seemed to lead right up to the verge where the sun was setting. Suddenly, this profound stillness was broken. Doubtful of having heard right, he listened and started to his feet, hastening in its direction. The tale told itself at once. Some scattered garments lay on the beach, a human head just visible above the waves a little distance from the shore. And there was an old man, wringing his hands in agony, running to and fro, shrieking for assistance. Hailing's strength was now sufficiently restored. He threw off his coat and rushed towards the sea, with the intention of plunging in and dragging the drowning man ashore. Hasten here, sir! In God's name, sir, help! He is my only son, sir, and dying before his father's eyes! At the first words of the old man, the stranger checked himself. Folding his arms, he stood perfectly motionless. Great God! George Haley! The stranger smiled and was silent. Haley! My boy Haley, my dear boy, look! He is alive yet! Save him! The stranger smiled again and remained immovable as a statue. I have wronged you. Be revenged. Take my all, my life. Cast me into the water at your feet and I will die without stirring hand or foot. Do it, Hailing, but save my boy. He is so young to die. Listen, I will have life for life. And here is one. My child died a far more agonizing and painful death than the one he is meeting. That young slanderer of his sister. You laughed at our sufferings then. What do you think of them now? See there. See. As the stranger spoke, he pointed to the sea. The last powerful struggle of the dying man agitated the rippling waves for a few seconds. And then, the place where he had descended into his early grave was indistinguishable from the surrounding water. Three years had elapsed from these events when a gentleman alighted from a private carriage at the door of a certain London attorney. This attorney was well known as a man of no great nicety in his professional dealings. The gentleman requested a private interview with him on important business. Although not evidently past the prime of his life, the gentleman's face was pale, haggard and dejected. Disease or suffering had done more to change his appearance than the mere hand of time could have achieved in twice the period of his entire life. I wish you to undertake some legal business for me. The attorney bowed obsequiously and glanced at a large packet that the gentleman carried in his hand. This is no common business. Nor have these papers reached my hands without long trouble and great expense. As you will see... The man whose name they bear has borrowed large sums of money for many years. There was a tacit understanding between him and his creditors that the loan should be renewed from time to time. Nowhere is this understanding expressed in writing. I have purchased all the debts for many times their nominal value. The man has sustained significant losses of late. 
Were they to accumulate upon him, they would crush him to the earth. The whole amount is many thousands of pounds. It is. What are we to do? Do? Put every engine of the law in force. Every trick that ingenuity can devise, fair means and foul. The open oppression of the law, aided by all the craft of its most ingenious practitioners. I would have him die a harassing and lingering death. Ruin him. Seize and sell his lands and goods. Drive him from house and home and drag him forth, a beggar in his old age, to die in a common jail. But the costs, my dear sir, the costs of all this. If the defendant be a man of straw, who is to pay the costs, sir? Name any sum, and it's yours. Don't be afraid to name it, man. I shall not think it dear if you gain me my objective. The attorney named a large sum as the advance he required to secure himself against the possibility of loss. But this was more with a view to ascertaining how far the client was really disposed to go. The stranger wrote a cheque for the whole amount immediately and left. The draft was duly honoured and the attorney began work in earnest for his strange client. For more than two years afterwards, George Haling would sit whole days together in his office, poring over the papers as they accumulated, reading again the letters which flooded in as legal suit after legal suit was begun. Expressions of protest, prayers for a little delay, representations of certain ruin for the opposite party. To all such applications for a brief indulgence, there was but one reply. The money must be paid. Land, house, furniture, all were taken. The old man himself would have been imprisoned had he not escaped the vigilance of the officers and fled. On being informed of this flight, Haling's fury was unbounded. He was only restored to comparative calmness by repeated assurances of the certainty of discovering the fugitive. Agents were sent in search of him in all directions. Every strategy was resorted to for the discovery of his place of retreat. But it was all in vain. Half a year passed and he was still undiscovered. One night, Haling appeared unannounced at the attorney's private residence. Before the attorney could order the servant to admit him, he rushed up the staircase and entered the drawing room, pale and breathless. Having closed the door to prevent being overheard, he sank into a chair. Sir! Hush! I have found him at last. No. Well done, my dear sir. Well done. He lies concealed in a wretched lodging in Camden Town. Perhaps it is as well we did lose sight of him, for he has been living alone there in the most abject misery. And he is poor. Very poor. Very good. You will have the warrant made tomorrow, of course. Yes. Stay. No. Make it for the following day. You are surprised at my wishing to postpone it? I had forgotten. The next day is an important anniversary in his life. Let it be done then. Haling and the officers met on the appointed night. He directed the driver of the hackney coach to stop at the corner of the old Pancras Road the location of the parish workhouse. They entered a small by-street, 
This was a desolate enough place, surrounded by little other than fields and ditches. Muffled in his cloak, Hailing stopped before the meanest-looking house and knocked gently on the door. It was opened by a woman who dropped a curtsy of recognition. Hailing whispered the officers to remain below. Creeping gently upstairs, he opened and entered the door of the front room. Now a decrepit old man, the object of his search and unrelenting hatred, was sat at a bare wooden table, on which stood a miserable candle. What now? What now? What fresh misery is this? What do you want here? A word with you. As Hailing spoke, he seated himself at the other end of the table, and throwing off his cloak and cap, disclosed his features. This day, six years ago, I claimed the life you owed me for my child's. Beside the lifeless form of your daughter, old man, I swore to live a life of revenge. I have never swerved from my purpose for one moment. And if I had, one thought of her uncomplaining, suffering look as she drooped away, or of the starving face of our innocent child, would have nerved me to my task. My first act of requital, you well remember. This is my last. Tomorrow, I leave England. Tonight, I consign you to the living death to which you devoted her. A hopeless prison. Hailing raised his eyes and lifted the light to the old man's face that was now slumped over the table. Then he set it gently down and left the apartment. You'd better see to the old man, he said to the woman as he opened the door and motioned the officers to follow him into the street. I think he's ill. Beneath a plain gravestone, in one of the most beautiful and secluded churchyards in Kent, wild flowers mingle with the grass. A soft landscape forms the fairest spot in the Garden of England. Here lie the bones of a young mother and her gentle child. But the ashes of the father do not mingle with theirs. Nor did the attorney ever gain the remotest clue as to the subsequent history of his strange client. The tale of The Strange Client featured the voices of Lisa Nightingale, Jim Newberry, and Mike Ayres. It was adapted and directed by Jim Newberry, with a soundscape realised by Robbie Burgess. It is a joint Old Dolly and PeopleScope production. And that's this week's show. Check out all our show notes on sonicsociety.org for the audio drama show and pick up the conversation about your favourite adaptations in the audio realm at Facebook, Audio Drama Radio Drama Lovers or on Twitter at Sonic Society or at David Alt. Yes, I am the David Alt of that handle with Jack Ward and we'll see you next time here on the Sonic Society. 
good morning. Yes, good morning indeed. Have a lovely day, everyone. (laughs) The Sonic Society is written and produced weekly by Jack J. Ward and David Alt with original music by Sharon B. at SharonB.com. All features, interviews, and audio drama shorts are owned completely by their originators and provided to the Sonic Society by Creative Commons Licensing. The Society itself originates from Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada. Thanks for listening. Jack Ward, and from all of us here at the Mutual Audio Network, we'd like to say thank you for making this our fourth season. With hundreds of original shows, we are the world's largest curated podcast and podcast family collection of audio drama and audio fiction, and it's all because of you. We couldn't be more grateful, because it's here at Mutual, where we listen and imagine together.